Have you ever uh, read bumper stickers around you? Like, if you read bumper stickers around you, you might see things that have to do with work, like this. Work is for those who don't know how to fish. And the bumper sticker. Well, you've probably seen this one, right? I owe, I owe. So, off to work I go. This is a good one. I'd rather be shopping or... Work fascinates me. I can sit and watch it for hours. And of course, who hasn't seen, thank God, it's Friday. Or this one, hard work may not kill me, but why take a chance? So it's clear from reading bumper stickers and listening to people that work may be necessary and it may be desirable for some and fulfilling for some, but it's, well, it's hard, isn't it? People often see it as a necessary evil, like something you have to endure. You know, you get your work done so that you can do your life outside of work. Uh, You do your work quickly so that you can get on with your real life. How do you look at work? I uh, was, we were starting a church in Ohio and I worked for UPS in a real high labor job where you loaded the trucks fast it really broke a sweat every night you'd go in like we in the wee hours of the morning and you just work hard loading that truck and there there were good people good people to work for good benefits they'd walk by the end of the truck and make sure you were always moving and if you if your movements were too many they would show show you how to work with an economy of movement they literally would tell you how to turn around and bend over and I was working in the truck one morning and I was hot and I was tired and um, it was it was so hot and I was so tired that I remember that I bent over to pick up a package and sweat ran off the bill of my cap I know this is probably more than you want to know but sweat literally ran off the bill of my cap and I thought wow and my back hurt and I remember i I straightened up for a minute and stopped working and I held my back for a second and the supervisor, who was a really good guy, walked by the end of the truck and he goes, we got to keep moving, Ken, all the time. Keep moving, all the time. I was like, that's the only time all night I wasn't moving. But I didn't tell him uh, work wasn't always that hard, but if I, I, I could tire you right now with a list of jobs that I have done so that I could preach. But I won't do that. You don't want to hear all that. But I was working at that UPS job one night. And I got off in the early morning. And I was all sweaty and dirty and tired. But I was in the end of Newark where my grandmother's house was. She's way up in years. And I thought, I don't know how many more times I'll be this close to her that I can talk to her. This is my grandmother who lived through two world wars, the Great Depression. You get the picture. And she wasn't really sure about us having babies one after another and like personally repopulating the globe. And so when I stopped by to visit, I made the mistake of saying to my grandmother, she's sitting over there in a chair and I said, I just want to visit a little bit. Oh, I was glad you stopped by. And I said, I, I was working all night and that's why I'm kind of dirty. And my grandma just, it's just like a litter up, like a polder string. Well, of course you are working all night. You have all of those babies. They have to be fed. Nobody's going to feed them for you. You know, when you decide to have babies like that, you have, you're going to have to work hard. I was like, okay, grandma. Her eyes were just blue eyes were just like firing and like, 
wow. My grandmother, I mean, I touched a button. She believed in work. They'd gotten to work. Grandpa had gotten work in the Great Depression at the Owens Corning Fiberglass, and they remembered the day, and they celebrated the anniversary of the day he went to work. And so they were very serious about work. And that carried over into my home, because I noticed my dad had that, would be if somebody had a job and was going to work, everybody else was supposed to not even really talk. You just get real quiet and serious, and you help get the person ready that's going to work. But just the way it was, they, dad would make sure you had your lunch packed, and they would see you off, and until the person working got off to work, then everybody in the house was supposed to focus on that. So gentlemen, if you're working, ladies, if you're working, everybody at your house should treat you like that. Now aren't you glad you came to church? Anyway, the point was, my, my family, on that side of the family, they had... They had some opinions about work. They had some, some thoughts about work. And maybe all of us do. And, uh, and, and it's interesting because, you know, work is going to be, whether, whether it's actual, you're a laborer or you're working for money, or maybe you're retired and you have an occupation still, or think, the thing you do is what I'm talking about. How should you see work? What, what does God say about how should we see work? But when you open your Bible at the very beginning, and you read the first three chapters, you understand that God made everything and that it was good and that it was orderly and that it was beautiful. But then immediately God's beautiful creation was fouled by sin and a curse came upon the earth and the curse came on everyone in the earth and the curse made life hard and the curse brought spiritual death and the curse brought the, 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 the physical death. And it brought um, a, a pronounced judgment upon the earth. So it affected everything. If you read, and we've been doing that, you, you see that it, it affected human relationships. And you see that the fall or the curse affected marriage relationships. And the fall and the curse affected childbearing. And the curse affected, obviously, relationships between brothers or fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. And then, obviously, very clearly, it affected Satan himself and his demons. But it specifically affected work. And we'll see that in just a minute. So work was being done before the fall, but work was cursed after the fall. So God's intent then, though, was to bring, to restore the earth to its original beauty and beyond. And to bring, as you know, if you read the whole Bible, if you read to the end of the Bible in Revelation, you know that God's intent is to have a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation and a restoration. And he sent his son Jesus to initiate that. And he wants us to be occupied in that. So God's intent is to bring heaven and earth together. So what I've done in our series of Life is Hard is over and over again, we've gone to Genesis and we pointed out the different aspects of what happens when the fall happened. And I've probably said to you over and over again, don't expect an easy life. But realize right there in the beginning chapters of Genesis, you have something that kind of frames our world and helps us to understand why there is such a, such a, um, there's literally a burden curse on, on the world that we live in. Now this is what it says in Romans 8, and this is the other place where we normally go, right? We, we look in Genesis 3 in particular, 
And then we look in Romans 8 as a, as a good example of God describing the new creation and, and the trajectory that, that we're on, where we're headed for the new creation. Here's what it says. This is Romans 8, verse 18. Romans 8, verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's a beautiful and poetic way of saying what I just said, and that is there's a, there's a burden of a sin curse that God has allowed upon the, brought upon the, upon the earth because of sin. And then Paul goes on and says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. To catch it, we said it before, but I want to kind of embed this in your hearts is that the reason the world is the way the world is. Why is it so beautiful? Because it was created by God with God's design in it. Then why is it so, why is it sometimes so ugly? And why do people do such ugly things? Because there's a sin curse on it. The Bible explains that right at the beginning. And we need to understand that. It needs to frame everything we do. It affects our marriages. It affects our relationships. And it affects childbearing. And it affects work. We'll see that again in a minute. Another statement of God's purpose in the world, restated in a little different way, is found in Ephesians 1, verses 9 through 11. And just to jar you a bit, I'll quote it from a different version than we normally use. I normally preach from the English Standard Version, the ESV. This is a good version as well. The New Living Translation puts it like this. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan that at the right time he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we're united with Christ, we've received an inheritance from God where he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. If you were to read on to verse 12, it would say something like this to bring Jews and Gentiles together into the same family. Nice to be in church today on a beautiful autumn Michigan day. It was nice to have a warm shower this morning, wasn't it? Nice to have a cup of coffee. It's nice to have clothes that you like and people that you love and a safe place to live. It's nice your daughter wasn't drug off into captivity today like girls in Israel were this week. It's nice that you're to wake up in peace, not go and look and see if your baby's room got blown up by a rocket. There is such hatred, hostility, animosity, bloodshed. Is it not sobering, but fascinating that from AD 70 until 1948, there's essentially no nation of Israel, even though the Bible talks about the time of the end, like Israel is a major player and all the eyes of the world are going to be upon that little spot of land, that little strip of land in the Middle East. And today, the eyes of all the world are on it. And our eyes should be filled with tears today, grief, grief. 
sadness for the brutal things that are happening there. And the Bible describes that. Why is that hostility there? And only God can fix it. That's what he's saying. It's only in Christ this will be brought together. Only in Christ. In the, in the new creation. We want to work toward that, of course, in every way. Towards reconciliation and peace. Or, or even in some cases, obviously legitimate self-defense. As you can imagine that you would do if someone was threatening your very life and existence in barbarous and horrifying ways. But we, as Christians, we ought to have in us a powerful longing for the new creation. A powerful longing for the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And in order for that to happen, God has allowed our lives to be filled with various kinds of hardship that remind us every day that only Christ can unite the world in peace. To remind us every day that believers have to depend on the righteousness of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit to live a godly life. So when you understand that, and when you look at the world that way, and then when you look at work or our occupation that way, it's God's way for us to look at work. In other words, what, what I'm getting at here is this. If we change the way we look at work, it transforms our life in a good way. If we see work the way God wants us to see work, if we see our daily, even if you're retired, you still have a daily occupation, something you're going to do with your life. And if you see that occupation the way God wants you to see it, it's transforming and good. It's good for you. It's especially good as you're trying to mirror or you're trying to foreshadow the new creation for people that need to have hope. And this is the essence of it, isn't it? It's to live in hope and not despair. It's to continually trust and believe in the promises of God that they can be trusted and not to give in to despair and then turn away to our own uh, resources, which are often sinful and wrong. So I want to share with you today what actually it's a two-part thing that today and, and also next week what does the scripture say about work how how should we look at work how should we see our work in order for us to be encouraged and these things I had a friend Steve Thompson I've mentioned to him before to I've mentioned him to you before Steve will visit us someday and share his testimony but as young men, I remember we met, we talked about work and I passed along some things to him about work some of the same things that I'll tell you today he, he, I think it was last summer he met me over at Cracker Rail with his wife and he looked at me and he said, that day at the Dogwood Inn when you told me those things that set me on a course that eventually he became the vice president of his company, the chairman of the school board and a key leader in the church, solid guy. But it was when he understood the frustrations that he had at work and then he understood the frustrations that he had at work, things that shouldn't be and how should he respond to them? And what is God doing? And one of the things I said, and I'm going to tell you more than what I told him, but one of the things I told him was like this. I said, Steve, like of the 100% of the things that God is doing, maybe only like a third of them have to do with your frustrations at work. At work, God is doing a lot of other things. Like the question that you might ask when you have a problem at work or a tension at work or a frustration at work or something at work you don't like. You might ask yourself this question, okay, God, what are you doing? God, what are you teaching me? 
And how do you want me to think about this? And how do you want me to respond to this? How should I see this? How can I see this like you see it? How can I be your agent in this situation? Can you see even how even that would really change a person's life? To always go, I have frustrations, but I'm going to deal with them as an agent of God. That's what we're talking about. How to calibrate our thinking so that that's what we'll do. Right here in this church was a young man who came to me one time with a frustration at work with a, a superior. And a tension, it was a serious tension. And we sat down, we talked about it. I said some of these same things to him. I suggested how he could deal with his superior at work, his boss, in, in a redemptive way. And it rarely happens like this, but it was within the same week that he came back. He said he had the conversation. This is going to sound fantastic, but his boss followed Christ. His boss became a Christian. Oh, so you don't have to read very far into the Bible to see life is hard. And if you understand the Bible, you won't expect an easy life. But you'll realize that in Christ, you can have a blessed life in a cursed world. You can have a whole life in a broken world because Jesus took the curse for us. We can be blessed. And he wants us to foreshadow the new creation, as I've mentioned. But he wants us to work toward the new creation in the sense, not that we bring it, but that he allows us to be a part of it. And maybe a good way to say it would be wherever you are and whatever you do, you want to make it a little bit more like heaven. You want to bring heaven to earth in the place where you work. Even in just the smallest ways, you want to bring heaven to earth in the place that you work. You probably all heard this anecdote about Steve Jobs hiring away the chairman of what was it? The CEO of Pepsi. And the guy was reluctant to go work with Apple and Steve Jobs famously said to him, do you want to spend your life peddling sugar water or do you want to change the world? What was he doing? Well, he's a lost guy, but he was giving him a purpose. He was appealing to his sense of purpose. And my goodness, do Christians have a purpose? If we're participating in God's big overarching plan in the world, to redeem the world, then we, we have the most benevolent purpose, the most beautiful purpose, the most worthy purpose that we get to be a part of. And it's not on our shoulders, it's on his shoulders, but we just get to be a part of it. Even a, a small part of it, but God does big things with little things. So when you have a meaningful why, everything changes. So this is important. That was the world's largest sermon introduction. And that's why this is a two-part message. So to summarize again, work is good. God puts them in the garden, and what does he say? Till it, keep it. This is good. This is before the fall. He had them working to garden and to farm before the fall. Work is a good thing. In chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, he told them to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. And, and then, he, then in chapter 2, he said, till and keep the garden. And so he initiated human work before the fall. In verse 15, he said it again. So we're created for good works. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know, it says we're created unto good works. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, that the people will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And Colossians 1, 10 says we're fully pleasing him, being faithful in every good work. In 2 Timothy 2, 21, it says we're sanctified and we're useful for every good work. And you remember when we talked through the book of Titus, over and over again, it said preach the gospel and do good works. Over and over again, working is something that's good. But in a fallen world, and we've established that working is hard, 
because then he goes, we're going to earn your bread by the sweat of your brow, as if something happened in the fall that made work harder. And it was, of course. But then the new creation is coming in, and we will work. As the scriptures teach, there'll be work in the new creation, but it won't be cursed work. And he blessed. And so we can use our calling to glorify God. I probably overdid that. I told you that about seven different times. You're like, move on. So I guess I'll just move on now. Thanks for sharing that with me. So here we go. Seven ways to see your work will glorify God. How you should see work, but we'll only get through three of them today. So that's not that hard. Okay, number one. Number one. Do your work as unto the Lord. It says this over and over in the Bible. And look in the epistles. When you look in the heart of the New Testament. When you get to the application parts of the epistles, and it talks about work, it's repeated in almost every exhortation. When you work, do it like you're doing it for the Lord and not for men. And it says it over and over again there in Scripture. Listen to this one. Colossians in chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. See that? Whatever you do, do heartily as to the Lord and not to men. That phrase, as to the Lord, is repeated over and over again. So this is just a practical technique, if you will. Your boss is weird, or your boss is mean, or your boss is surly, or your boss is dumb. Sorry, I'm just, you know, saying, you know, but you got, well, that's okay, because you're not working ultimately for your surly, mean boss. Or your imperfect boss. You're working because the eyes of the Lord are upon you. You actually consciously think, this is for you, Jesus. This is a transformative thing. Transformative thing. Whatever you do, this is in Colossians 3. Do heartily as to the Lord and not to men. And listen to this promise in verse 24. Knowing from the Lord you'll receive a reward of the inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ. So like... If you're serving your boss who's imperfect or maybe misaligned with you, you might be like, you might have a bad attitude. But if what you're doing, you're doing for the king of kings, you might want to have a smile on your face and a spring in your step and a bit of energy. It's for the king after all. Ephesians 6 says it like this, verses 5 through 7. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord, not to men. Do what you do for God. And there it is again. He will repay you. You ever met somebody that looks like they're they're they've put a little something extra in their work? Who doesn't appreciate that? You're just looking at me. Uh, I was over at Muskegon, and we were going to the lake one day. And there was a, girl, a gal named Liz. Gal, I say. She was probably in her early 70s. And uh, when we rolled up, she has the gatekeeper job at the park. Now, you know how people can be if they don't have much power, but they keep the gate. And they don't care who you are. They either are going to let you in or maybe not. And when they know they have that authority, they can be like a royal pain. You ever met people like that? They get the gatekeeper, jobs worth mentality. And I'm like, oh, great. You got a little job and you want everybody to know you can decide who gets in the park today. 
Liz was not like that. She was the exact opposite. We roll up. She greets us with enthusiasm. You know, I, I can't say it like she did, but welcome to Muskegon State Park. This is one of Michigan's so many parks, and this is what we have, and this is what you can do, and we're glad you've come today. Would you like a season pass? If I can give you the season pass, you can go to all these. And she described all these other parks, but if you want the day pass today, and I'm like, wow, you know, and then my son, Kyle, I think he was about 16 at the time, he was sitting there. I remember she says, and where have you been all my life? She says to Kyle. I said, what's her name? They said, Liz. I, I wrote a note back. She, like she was putting a little something. She's putting a little extra something on that job. And I drove away smiling like, wow, I'm glad I came here today. And it was all about Liz doing that. But she had that ability. I, I think the scriptures are saying that to every believer. <laughs> Here's motivation for you to go to work. You're doing it for the Lord. So we should then do our work with a holy enthusiasm. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Romans 12.11, you know this. It says, not lagging in diligence, but be fervent in spirit when you're serving the Lord. And when you're working, you're serving the Lord. So you should serve the Lord. Get up in the morning, put your coffee in your thermos and go, All right, I'm off to work to serve Jesus Christ with all of my heart. And I'll do it with a fervent. Would people say, oh, that gal has a fervent spirit when she comes to work wonder what would happen you know put your soul into your work and then you put you work with all your might ecclesiastes 9 10 says whatever your hands find to do do it with your might and then said, i i believe you know I'm a, I'm a i get to be a church pastor i believe deeply and i've always thought about writing a book about it I think you should, I always tell people, other pastor friends, never let yourself lose the romance of the ministry. Never lose the romance of the ministry. This would be true about any job. Never let yourself lose the romance of it. There are people that would love to have your situation in life. I mean, they would love to have your job. They would love to live in your house. There are probably millions of people that would love to live in your house. They would love to have your job. They would love to have your life. Matter of fact, I was complaining to my wife the other day. I wasn't really complaining. I was joking about I want her to admire all I had done that day. So I was telling her how busy I was and how early I started and how late I worked. And she says, don't kid yourself. You have a really good life and you know it. And I'm like, you got me. You're right. And I'm like, you do too, don't you? And she goes, well, I do. And there we were on the phone going, you know, we really do have a good life and good things to occupy us. And we, so we should serve with all of our might. We should never lose the romance of it. Years ago, I heard about a, a restaurant. We weren't living here. I heard about a restaurant in Jackson. I think it was called Steaks Eatery. Do I have that right? Steaks Eatery? Work with me, people. You know that about that restaurant. I know you're thinking it's closed now. But were the portions large? Yes, the portions were large. And were the prices reasonable? Yes, they were. And was the service good? And it was meat, people. Meat. So we heard about this. So we thought, two guys, we went over there. I think the family that owned it was named Davis, I believe. Could be right. So we go over to the Steaks Eatery, and we eat, and we enjoy our food. And Chuck and I were driving away, and a couple of people had made conversation with him. And here's what Chuck said. Chuck was in food services, so he was kind of paying attention. And I was kind of paying attention to service. It's interesting to me. 
And we're driving away, and Chuck says, the guy who waited on us, I bet he was a Davis. That's what he said. I bet he was a Davis. Meaning, I bet it was his family. Because you could tell that he was especially solicitous to make sure our order was right, and that he took good care of us. You could tell that he had, there was an, a sense of ownership there. That, that's just, I think what it ought to be like as believers, people ought to be able to see us and go, what is up with that guy? He's got a little something extra going on. That lady puts a little something more into it. What, what's her secret? Is she in the same factory I'm in? What gives her that energy? What gives her that spark? Why, does, why is he so determined to do it well? I think that's what the scriptures are saying. We pour our heart into it. If you want to see work the way God wants you to see work, you want to see work as you're doing it for the Lord. Do what you do for the Lord. Florence Nightingale, famous Florence Nightingale, said, she wrote in her diary at 30, she had this, I am 30, the age at which Christ began his earthly ministry. Now no more childish things, no more empty things. Now, Lord, let me think only of your will. And years later, at the end of her life, when she was asked the secret of her great usefulness for God, she said, well, I can only give you one explanation. I kept nothing back from God. God is the one who provides us our food. He is the one who's given us our children, if we have them, our grandchildren. He's the one who opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. And he uses common milkmaids and truck drivers and doormen and teachers and real retail workers and just common folks to do, to bring his things to us. So the second thing, first then, do it as unto the Lord. That's very powerful. That's what the Bible says. That's how you should see work. You can glorify God by that. You glorify God by seeing your work. Secondly, see it as worship. See it as direct worship. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You're familiar. It says, therefore, therefore, whether you eat or drink, and here it comes, or whatever you do, you know this, do it all to the glory of God. That's a very powerful and practical thought. And what I'm doing, I'm doing for the Lord. And what I'm doing, I'm doing to glorify God. You think it's a bad day? Yeah. You handle a bad day for the glory of God. But this boss isn't fair to me. Yeah. How does a person act under a fair boss in order to glorify God? Let me ask you this question. Is it easier to glorify God with a good boss or a bad boss? Well, that's interesting. It might be, it might be in one sense, easier to glorify God if you're behaving well. And it's just a thought. Who wants a bad boss, though? Martin Luther understood this when he wrote, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves floors that are clean. Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Now my, here's how my dad taught me this. I was, you know, I'm an extrovert, and so I embarrass everybody around me all the time that's how I roll so you know the idea for me to wear witness wear I'm the kind of guy that would probably do that what, what normal people would not do that when I was a kid I had a badge on I remember Christ is the answer was on my badge trying to be a witness but I was being slothful and my dad always said you know 
before you, if, if you're on the clock, you're working, and if you're on the clock and you're not working, you're stealing. That's what my dad would always say. If you're on the clock and you're not working, you're stealing, so find something to do in a grocery store. You should be mopping, you should be stocking shelves, you should be facing shelves. He says, he says to me, because he knows me, don't be talking to people, but be facing the shelf. So I'm like, I should have said to my dad, hey dad, what if I get a job where they pay me to talk to people? That's my secret right there. I just go from one place to another talking to people. Anyway, he saw that I was talking to the girls up front, and, and, he, and, he, and he said, you know, there's a lot of detail in this story, but basically he said, take your badge off. Because, you know, the Lord didn't say wear a badge, but he did say be a good worker. So the best witness where to work is work. Let him figure out who is that masked man. Or, if you prefer, that not masked man. You know, who is that? Why are they working like that? Have you, you know, you've had people wait on you, and they have a little extra something, a little extra kindness, a little extra solicitous, a little, they keep your conversation, and they hold your gaze, and they, can I do anything more for you? And you think, my goodness, that person's going somewhere. And then you had that other person, you think, when is that person going away? Because they're not really much help. The Christian Here's a third thing. Here's a third thing. One, you want to glorify God? You see work the way God sees it? Do it as unto the Lord. Whatever you're, you're doing. The second thing, if you want to glorify God and do, th do what you do as an act of intimacy and love and worship to God. That, that changes things. And then third, see your work as a way to love people and serve people. See your work as a way to love people. There's something really powerful in that. It's all over the Bible, but like 1 Corinthians 13 says, don't look on your own things, but look on the things of others. That's a powerful thing that it's easy to overlook because we are so selfish and self-oriented. But the Bible says if you don't love, nothing else matters. It doesn't, doesn't matter if you give your body to be burned, if you can talk like an angel. It'll just be irritating noises to people. If you don't love, nothing matters. So pray, love, invite, have gospel conversations, but by all means, love. You say, well, I can't, I'm working. Okay, love people on the job. Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna penalize you for that. Do what you do and think of it consciously as, I'm doing this for the Lord, I'm worshiping, and I'm, I'm loving my fellow human beings. One of the basic essential reasons for work is to have the basic needs of your family met. So you go off to work and you say, I'm doing this for my wife, for my husband, for my children. You know that, because I love them. You open your lunch pail and there's a little picture inside your lunch pail. And you could work a long time and hard if you have a little picture in your lunch pail. That's one of the reasons you give to missionaries too, you know. You say, you hear the, vi the video, like if that missionary, you've been given to that missionary, do you ever notice you're especially interested in that missionary? You ever notice that? You give a, give a hundred, like send a hundred dollars to them on your own or through the church or whatever. And then the next time the prayer letter comes, you're like, hey, where is that prayer letter from Extreme Response? Because you invested in that? 
But you can't do that unless you worked and you made some money to give away. So you should go find something to do so you can make money. Kids know that. You ever have a kid come up and say, do you have a job for me? And you want to ask them, why? Why do you need a job? And sometimes it's because they want to squander it upon their lust like their mother. You know, they might be saying, I want, that was a joke about the mother there. Yeah, like I want a new video game. But a lot of times they're like, I want to buy something for mom for her birthday. They don't really want a job. They want a job to make money because they want to love somebody. Now that's the way it's supposed to work. That's what the Bible says. Don't forget you're working so that you can love somebody. You're working as under the Lord. You're working so you can worship God. You're working so you can love somebody. So we want to pray that God would help us. Listen, Proverbs 12, 11 says, the one who tills his land will be satisfied with bread. Or if you stay on the job, you'll have food on the table. Another way of saying that. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a person won't work, don't let him eat. <laughs> Proverbs 13.4, the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of a diligent man shall be made rich. Can I tell you a secret? Um, so I'm turning 65 soon. There, the cat's out of the bag. Yeah, <laughs> turning 65. Everybody's sending me mail about turning 65. It's making me feel kind of old. It's kind of not, not fun. But I, get the, I got logged on to my social security site and I got to look at, and it's fascinating to look at, uh, even though I consider myself a guy that's like, uh, I'm not a workaholic, I'm kind of a people person, so I can easily have conversations that are a little longer than they need to be. But when I look on my social security site, it goes like this. Guess what? Kenny's been up to something for his entire life working, and I have a record to prove it, that every God has allowed me and given me strength, and people have chosen to pay me every year of my life. And so you probably have a site like that that may or may not show that for you. Maybe your work isn't recorded by Social Security, and you work really, really, really hard for year after year after year. I commend you. That was a Christian thing to do. That was a good thing to do. That's how you ought to see that. And that's how we ought to look at our lives. What am I going to do today for the Lord as worship to love people? Let me read you this little article. So there was a front page article in the San Francisco Chronicle about a metro transit operator named Linda Wilson Allen. I think we're going to see her picture here in a minute. She loves the people who ride her bus. She knows the regulars. She names their names. She'll wait for them if they're late and then make up the time later in the route. A woman in her 80s named Ivy had some heavy grocery bags and she was struggling with them. So Linda got out of her bus driver's seat and carried Ivy's grocery bags onto the bus. And now Ivy lets all the other buses on go by so that she can ride on Linda's bus. Linda saw a woman named Tanya at a bus shelter. She could tell Tanya was new to the area. She could tell Tanya was lost, and it was almost Thanksgiving. So Linda said to Tanya, you're all out there, you're out there all by yourself, and you don't know anybody. Why don't you come over to, for, to our house for Thanksgiving and kick it with me and the kids? So now, Linda and Tanya are friends. The reporter who wrote the article rides Linda's bus every day. 
He said, Linda has built such a little community of blessing on that bus that passengers offer Linda the use of their vacation homes. They bring her potted plants and floral bouquets. And when people found out that she likes to wear scarves to accessorize her uniforms, they started giving them to her as presents. Think about what a thankless task driving a bus can look like in our world. Cranky passengers, engines that are smelly and break down, traffic jams, gum on the seats, and ask yourself, how does she have this attitude? She says this, my mood is set at 2.30 a.m. when I get up. The first thing I do is I get down on my knees and I pray. And she says, I have a lot to talk to the Lord about. She's a member of the Glad Tidings Church in Hayward. She's a Christian. When she gets to the end of her line, she always says to the pastors, well, that's all. I love you. Take care. Have you ever had a bus driver tell you, I love you? People wonder, where can I find the kingdom of God? I'll tell you where. You find it on bus number 45, riding through San Francisco, California. So this was John Ortberg saying, we invited Linda to speak at our church. People with all kinds of Silicon Valley dreams in our church were inspired to standing ovations by a woman who drives a bus in our town. They stood in line by the dozens afterward to talk with her because the door on the number 45 bus opens into the kingdom of God. I hope that today that you will go on your way encouraged in whatever it is that God has called you to do, to see it the way God sees it. And, and towards that purpose, what we'd like you to do is we'd like you to have a blessing prayed over you. And I think, is Dennis Conan, are you the prayer guy? Where is Dennis? Dennis, come on up here, please. And we don't want to make that like a game show. Take your time. Yeah, that sounded. Dennis is going to pray for you. If you stand and receive a blessing, we also have counselors at the front of the room that would love to talk with you. If you like me or Pastor Jordan uh, or one of the elders to come see you or meet with you, would you please let us know that? If you know somebody that needs care or help uh, or communion or a visit, please let us know how we can help. We want to be a blessing. But wherever you go, bring the kingdom with you. Dennis, thank you.